You're listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast with your hosts, Attorney Dan Mayer and Licensed Counselor Melissa Westner. Dan is not your attorney and Melissa is not your therapist, but they're here to help you cross your T's and dot your I's as they talk about all the things you wish you had learned in grad school. And now, here are your hosts. Hi there and welcome back. Joining us today is a guest that we know you're going to find helpful. And it's very possible that you're already familiar with her and her work. Julie Harris is an accountant and she's the owner of Green Oak Accounting. Her firm provides accounting, bookkeeping, uh, and tax services to private practices, practice owners throughout the United States. Their mission essentially is that every practice should be profitable. Julie and her team have worked with hundreds of private practice owners, so they are uniquely positioned to be trusted advisor to their clients. Julie also hosts podcasts herself, Therapy for Your Money podcast, where she talks about all things money and finance for private practice. Melissa and I were just on her podcast, I think, um, a couple of weeks ago. So we're excited to have her here on our podcast now. Yeah. So Julie, we're really glad that you could be here with us today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Well, we've got lots of questions for you, so we hope you're ready. Yes. Lay it on me. Great. Okay. When it comes to accounting for private practice owners, your name and company come up quite frequently. And so we're wondering how exactly did you find yourself in the position of being the go-to person or the go-to company for mental health practitioners? Oh, well, so a couple of, when, when I started my business, um, I was like, like many folks in general, a generalist, right? And that happens a lot in private practice as well, where you kind of see a little bit of everyone. Um, and then I, I, uh, a number of years ago, I decided to really be intentional and look at the client list and decide who are the clients that we really love working with, but also where we can have the biggest impact. Um, and I love working with the mental health industry because they, uh, all of our clients are very highly educated, obviously but they're also very receptive to the information. So what I found is that private practice owners are really wanting to improve their business and really wanting to understand the financial side of their business, where that really tends to be a blind spot for them from a business perspective. Um, And not all industries are like that. So that's one thing that I really, really liked is that the information is welcome. The information is respected. But what we also did is look at all of our clients that were practice owners could we see some trends? Could we see what are the really successful people doing and what are the, the struggling uh, practice owners doing? And can we extrapolate that data to really be able to help uh, the industry in general? And we really, really were. We were able to find, initially it was even, even less, but just some, some ratios where we could say like, hey, we're really wanting to see your profit to be, to be about here. Uh, based on the size of your your industry. Now that we've worked with so many more uh, hundreds of of practices, we can get even better data because we can see even more detail on what's going on. Um, So I I find that that's one of the the places where we can help the most is just knowing what are the financial trends in the industry, but also what can you reasonably expect out of your business at each stage of private practice? Sure. And and that's actually leads me to ask the following question, which is, you know, based on your experience now, having worked with hundreds of practitioners, it would seem to me that, you know, because finance is such a data-driven field, you know, you said it yourself said that, there's, there must be uh, something you see popping up over and over again um, that you see mental health practitioners dealing with in terms of mistakes they're making. Um, is there one or two common mistakes that, you know, seem to be uniquely 
uh, kind of attributable to mental health practitioners or mental health practitioners uh, tend to be making? Yeah. So the, the couple that, that come to mind are uh, first is hiring the first clinician. And, and obviously not everyone is going to have a group practice, but it's not uncommon for someone to get really full. Um, and then, then the next step is, okay, let me hire someone part-time, right? That's not uncommon. Uh, almost all of the time, I would say nine out of 10 times that first hire is paid too much. Um, and it comes from a really uh, place of generosity and a place of not wanting to take advantage of anyone, but it comes, uh, that decision is made without any kind of financial uh, understanding and at the detriment of the practice. Because uh, the, the reality is when you're adding just one clinician, in most cases, it doesn't add to your office space. It doesn't necessarily add to your overhead. You're not needing to hire an admin all of a sudden just because you have one part-time clinician. But you do have to take all those factors into consideration when making that offer because if you add two, three, four, five, ten clinicians, you will need all of those all of those things, and you do want to have some room to support the overhead because you, as the practice owner, can't just magically take all that on and then be doing intakes for ten people, and that's going to work. Um, that's not sustainable. So there has to be just room to build in all the services that you will eventually need, unless the plan is to really just stay with that one part-timer. Um, but there also has to be profit in every single session. I truly, truly believe in that because if there's not going to be any profit, you might as well just stay a solo practice owner. There's no point in having team members. If you're not going to benefit from it financially, you're taking on more risk. You deserve to have some profit. So I'd say the, the, the one of the most common mistakes is first hire getting paid just too much comes from a good place, um, but it can hurt. All of those things are are really good points. And I know how uncomfortable talking about money can be for mental health practitioners. And like you were saying earlier, finances or even business in general, that's not something that's covered in our curriculum. And so really there is this gap in information. Well, and I was going to add that, you know, that's something that I see as an attorney working in this field, right? Is that when practitioners come out of school, when practitioners are have been in the field for a couple of years working, if they're now all of a sudden deciding that, you know, maybe it's not all of a sudden, but now they're deciding that they want to start a, a, a private practice um, and I'm consulting with them. You know, what I find is that they're, they're, it's rare that you're going to find the person who's a natural business person. Um, it can happen. Some people have that kind of you know, intrinsic element within them, but most people, it's a trained something you have to train yourself sure. to do. And I noticed that as well with a lot of practitioners is you have to get them to start thinking like a business owner, that they're running a business. And it's not just the mental health practice now. That's one hat. But the second hat you're wearing in separate hat in some ways is as a business owner. Yeah. So that's a good point. And that's kind of uh, leading into one of the other big mistakes is not looking at the financial data. And it's a little bit of a chicken and the egg, which one comes first, right? You don't mm -hmm. look at the financial data. So maybe you, you offer too much to someone, but uh, there's a ton of useful information in the financial data, but if you're just doing uh, what I call bank balance bookkeeping, you're just looking at just logging into the bank app, how much money is in there? Okay, we're good. Uh, we have enough. Like, there's a lot that's missing there. So same happens if you just go to your tax person at the end of the year, uh, do an Excel dump uh, of all the data right before you do go to that meeting. Sure, you're getting it. You're getting your compliance in, and you're getting your tax return done, and there, there's some value there. But not looking at it throughout the year, you're missing out on all that information and, and on seeing trends. Like, for example, did your software spend double? Why was that? Right. So if you don't know what the numbers are, it's hard to make data driven decisions because you just don't have the you just don't have the data. Question for you. Um, 
When does someone usually contact you? You find that a lot of people tend to contact, it's more common they contact you when they're thinking, okay, I want to start a practice and here's all the things I need to do. Or maybe they even listen to our podcast and they hear, okay, here's the people you need to have on your team. You know, or is it more like someone's already started and something's going wrong or they're, they're frustrated, um, they can't figure something out and then that's what gets them to you? Or is it kind of a mix of the two? So I would say I believe in working with an accountant from mm-hmm. the very, very beginning of your practice. Um, sure. in, in my firm, we tend to work with uh, one of the big common denominators is practice owners that are in a, a period of growth or wanting to to have significant growth in the business. Mm-hmm. We only offer monthly ongoing services uh, in my firm just mm-hmm. because we, I, I truly strongly believe that that is the best way for us to help our clients. So we don't do just year end taxes for that reason, because that that's compliance only. We want to do just way more than that. Um, so as far as like working with my firm, it tends to be someone who's like, okay, I'm ready. I want to do this and I want to gotcha. do it the right way. That tends mm-hmm. to be the common denominator, but that doesn't mean that someone shouldn't have, shouldn't work directly with an accountant. Um, if they're, if they're not quite there yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, Melissa and I both would tell you that, you know, a, that we think that, you know, in addition to having a lawyer or having, you know, different aspects, different people on your team outside your office, the accountant portion is so important to running um, the best practice you can possibly do. Yeah. And I think, you know, even listening to your podcast, you know, from the perspective of someone who is a clinician, I think the thing that I find so helpful in in the approach that you're talking about is having someone who can help you make certain decisions instead of mm. just guessing like, well, I think that I can do this. Right. Can I really do that? I guess we're going to find out. Right. But it sounds like it's a much more collaborative process of saying, hey, let's really look at the numbers and talk about what we're seeing. And you also have data from, you know, all of the clinicians that you've worked at be able to compare to, not that that necessarily can be equated to everybody necessarily or generalized to everybody, maybe based on geography and some other things. Um, but it does it's, sound like a, like a collaborative process of yeah. decision-making. Because sometimes if you're in your own little silo, it's hard to, to know, like, is this the right thing? So having a conversation uh, or when our clients have a conversation with us, it can sound something like, well, here's the trend that we're seeing, or here's how, uh, how for example, some people set structure this type of situation, like a CEU reimbursement. For you. Here's how people structure it, how we've seen it work well. So while we obviously would never share any kind of uh, specific information from our client, we can still share like, hey, here's a success story that we've seen. Um, and we can do that because um, we see so much in the mental health industry. It's not like we're working with a private practice and a construction firm and, and, and like we, we kind of have, have that data. Sure. I have kind of a, a, a different question for you. And, you know, often the, the stereotype in the mental health field is that it's thought of as kind of a female dominated field. But of course, you know, that's a generalization. And there are certainly many men working in, um, in the mental health field. But my question to you, maybe partially because I'm the male part of the duo, um, <laughs> is, you know, do you see that there's a difference in terms of, how, you know, working with um, the male business owner versus the female business owner? Are there certain trends or things you notice that kind of come up with one versus the other? Yes. So generally speaking, I would say I find that our male clients just tend to be more confident in their own gut feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that doesn't mean that, of course, we have plenty of female clients who are, who are confident in their own gut feeling, but just in general, uh, men just tend to doubt themselves a little bit less. So they tend to make a decision faster and just move forward faster. And I think because of that, they tend to grow faster 
as well. Mm, um, just because the cycle of decisions is that much shorter. Wow. You know, that goes to an important point, I think. And that's one of the reasons why I think female um, entrepreneurship is so important. Um, and I also think it's so important that um, women coming up today are instilled with the ability to have self-confidence in themselves. Because I think that often, too often in the past, we as a society have been too patriarchal. We've been too um, dismissive of, of women and their talents. Um, and I think that it would seem to me that that would be, you know, one of the things that would kind of cause some of that potentially. And so I think it's great that you're commenting on that. Um, I think that just goes to, like I said, to show how important it is that um, as women business owners, it's so important that we're in a team, you know, attorneys like me, accountants like you, helping female business owner thrive because I think that that's, you know, what makes the, the, the profession better. And I was, I was just looking up some uh, stats recently and I don't remember them off of the top of my head, but what I was reading uh, from the SBA is that more women are starting businesses, but of the business, small businesses, loans that are being issued, mm -hmm. they're significantly smaller for women owned businesses. Um, and in mm -hmm. part, that's because women ask for less upfront, mm -hmm. which is, was really, really interesting to me. So we're starting more businesses, but we're asking for less money. So we still have a ways to go mm -hmm. um, as far as evening, evening the playing field there. But um, as far as like, as far as growth, I, I'm a, a woman business owner, obviously. So mm -hmm. I, I love to just even that up a little bit with like the data and and the confidence, right? And sometimes that meet that might mean um, like just last week we have a client who's growing. There's a a lot of hiring happening, and it's intentional, right? We we plan for it. We know it is happening. The profit has dipped, um, and I know that can be really stressful. So we reached out and said like, hey, we know the profit has dipped. This is normal. It will like remember we plan for this. There's money in the bank for this. It will get better in 90 days. That's what our, all of our forecast has said. So if you're feeling stressed out, don't worry. It's going to be okay. Her response was like, thank you for normalizing this because I was starting to get worried, right? And we, had, we knew exactly what was going to happen, but just kind of having that like, hey, remember, it's going to be okay. We knew this was coming and we know it's going to get better on the other side. Like that can feel really good as a, as a business owner and a woman business owner to know like, okay, I've got this. Um, not doubt yourself. I feel like that also goes again towards as practitioners coming out of school. You know, this is again not something that they're being taught in school. They're not learning how to do, how to be the business owner, how to run a business. That's so important that they have someone like you, an advocate in their corner, kind of giving them this information, helping them arm themselves so that they can make these decisions, which in turn would give them, I would say to me, more self confidence to be able to ask for that larger loan, to be able to kind of make a, a better forecast about where the business is going and how to respond to market forces, for example. Yeah, absolutely. So, another question I have, because this is the, this is obviously the area that I, you know, you know, focus on is, you know, the consequences um, and, and what happens when you don't do things right. What are some of the potential consequences of business owners not prioritizing their accounting or their bookkeeping, you know, trying to go at, a, at their own, you know, what have you seen on your own or, or what kind of tidbits can you give us on that, that question? Yeah. So, so the, the softer, um, less tangible reality is if you don't have the financials, you are not able to make those, those data-driven decisions, right? That, but that's hardly something that gets everyone like running to their, to their accountant's office. Um, on the compliance side, like not knowing how much profit you're actually making makes it really, really easy not to save for taxes. And that's one of the frequent mistakes we see, especially in that first year of private practice or in a year of significant growth, um, is not saving enough for taxes, especially if someone is starting the, the practice kind of this time of year, it's we're recording mid-year, 
but maybe they had a W-2 position last year. Um, and so they're going in and not necessarily saving for taxes because they typically haven't owed very much. Um, and that can come as a really big surprise bill next April. And then you're not only catching up for last year, but also getting trying to get ahead for the current year. Um, so, so just having that resource to, to, to go through the numbers and, and figure out like, okay, of this, what is my profit and how much of this do I need to be saving for taxes? That can be super, super helpful. Um, but also on the compliance side, like this is a true story from uh, the last month. We had a client who in the first two years of business did not, did, just wanted to DIY, right? So he did his own books um, did his own tax return, but didn't file the right form. Mm. Um, so didn't file the right, um, type of business return. And so he just got hit with $4,800 in failure to file penalties Mm. for those forms. Um, because typically I didn't know I was supposed to do it is not like a good answer for the IRS, right? Like if you have this business, (laughs) you're supposed to know what the compliance items are for your business. So just, I didn't know isn't good enough. And like 4,800, you could have paid someone to do your tax. So one, not have to, to take the time to do it, uh, but also had it done right for, for probably less than that. So yeah. it would seem to me that, you know, the consequences of, of something in, in the, the story you just told as well is that there's potentially legal um, perils that come up then because, you know, obviously, you know, if it's a you know, 4,800, it's, it's a fair amount, but it's not, you know, you know, 10,000, 15,000, yeah, not the end of the world. But when it is, when that is the case, you know, those people who end up in those shoes, that's when they usually end up talking to the tax attorney. <laughs> right. That's usually when, <laughs> when there's litigation or things happen, the IRS is really going after someone. And so it would seem to me that, you know, another part, portion of this is, is that as part of your due diligence and kind of running a proper, um, a well uh, uh, kind of run business, the reason that it seems to me that you, the role that you play is so important is you're also then, you know, reducing the potential for your other costs may come up, legal costs being, being among them. Sure. Um, and that's one of the things that I think is so important about the role you play. You know, much like my role is that we both share a common denominator and that our goals for our clients are to reduce their risk, to make sure that they're in compliance so that they don't have, you know, whatever costs they already have, you are not adding to the cost additional, you know, the fees you owe the IRS or fees you owe for, you know, a prolonged uh, efforts by an attorney on your behalf. Um, and so it would seem to me that that, that role you're playing is just so critical, um, an element of running a compliant practice. Yeah. And it's really interesting to me because um, obviously therapists are super educated um, and that, that there's this tendency to want to DIY. Um, and I, I really think there, I don't deal with my own website because I am horrible at that. That stuff, right? mm-hmm. So if there's something that you're not good at, other than in the very, very beginning stages of a baby practice, it makes sense to hire people to do what they're good at, hire yeah. a good attorney to review your contract, right? Like mm-hmm. review all, uh, hire, hire out the skills that you don't have. Um, mm-hmm. So that typically can make a lot of sense. And in, in this particular story was not that bad because there, he had actually paid the taxes. And so yeah. there's not a, a failure to pay. There's not penalties sure. and interest, but like it could it could snowball so much. Um, and Correct. we're currently dealing with that for another client right now who we just filed, I think, seven years of back taxes. Um, and there's just seven years is a big, giant payment, right? There's tax owed on seven yeah. years of your business. Compliance is always the best, the right thing to do. But oh my gosh, just that hurt all yeah. in one fell swoop. And I think so often 
people want to DIY it because they don't want to spend the money. Right. And I'm kind of laughing inside as I'm here listening, you know, because again, I was hit with that reminder myself this past year, I needed to make a report for something unexpectedly. And I remember how many hours I spent putting together this report just because I didn't want to pay someone to do it. And I was like, well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to pay to do this. I'm going to do this. And then at the end, my husband said, so Melissa, how many hours did you spend working (laughs) on that report? And how much was it that you could have paid to have someone do that for you? And so also just remembering the value of your time, that there's value for your time and how much time could you save if you pay someone else for that? And how much money would you be generating if you did the thing that you're good at doing um, and letting someone else do what they do? And how much frustration can you avoid too, right? Right. And I'll tell you, you know, we, my practice, we, we uh, uh, mostly do monthly um, as well, um, much like you do, Julie. And the reason we do it is for exactly the same reason is that um, our concern is that when we have clients who are watching the clock or worried about the cost of how much something is per hour, then they're not coming talking to us when there's something going on or, or a potential issue. And when they, and I found this, this has actually happened with clients where they try to DUI with their legal uh, matters. And they, they mess up and really because they're not lawyers because they didn't go to school to be lawyers. And then they come to me and say, we need your help. And then it costs double or triple the time and money to fix things. And so it seems to me that in the accounting world, that's especially true, too, um, because the fact of the matter is, is that when it comes to accounting and it comes to law, there's a lot of different regulations and rules you need to follow. And yes. if you don't. That's where you end up in deep trouble. <laughs> and there's a lot of well-meaning Facebook advice out there too, right? Like in various oh boy. Uh, mental health groups. <laughs> and, like, and that is, again, so well-intentioned. Um, but just because something is a good idea for uh, your friend in another state doesn't necessarily mean it makes sense for you, your practice, the size of your practice, right? So, so. Just because someone has a contractor in one place doesn't mean that in your state it makes sense to have contractors. Or is legally because, sufficient. Or exactly, exactly. Like it, from from a, a legal perspective too. Mm-hmm. Just because someone said they have an S corp and, and their accountant said it saves them on taxes doesn't mean that it's necessarily the right thing for everyone. Uh, mm-hmm. There's some state restrictions. There's city restrictions. Uh, there's a lot of different considerations, and so it it usually makes sense to double check the information. Just to make sure it's right. And making sure that you're getting personalized help when you're working with a consultant, your own attorney, your own accountant, you're getting personalized information that fits for your particular office. Yeah. And that goes, you know, what you're you're talking about goes to something that, you know, I and and Melissa and I both have said multiple times um, on episodes we've done already, which is that it's so important that practitioners know what they don't know. And if, you know, and, and why that's so important is because no one's expecting you necessarily to be an expert when it comes to your accounting or tax, tax law um, or taxes. And that's why it's so important. If you don't know how to do it and do it right, the best thing you can do is get an advocate, get someone on your, you know, your so-called team, you know, such as yourself, who's there to kind of take that over for you and make sure it's being done right. But just because the pitfalls, legal and otherwise, are just, you know, it's just too much it's going to cost too much stress and it'll probably cause too much problems for you in the long run if you don't do it right the first time. Yeah. And having someone in your corner who knows, who knows how to deal with something is just helpful, right? Like recently, um, a lot more IRS notices have been coming out now that the IRS is kind of catching things up. Um, and so there's a lot of IRS notices saying that, Hey, you didn't pay. Um, and one of the errors that's happening is that let's say, um, 
you, Melissa, and your husband file a return together, but you made the estimated tax payments and your husband listed, it lists, is listed as the first person on the tax return. It's not linking those two together. So the payments are made. It, they just haven't been applied. And it really is a simple fix. We know exactly how to do it. We've done it dozens of times. But like if you get that letter and you don't have anywhere to turn and all of a sudden you're, you're like panicking, oh my God, I owe another $18,000. What am I going to do? What's happening, right? Like you're kind of panicked. And then you're going to also go sit on hold for three hours uh, with the IRS. And then they're going to drop your call. We, we have ways to, to fix these things that is going to take a lot less time. It is going to be simpler. And like your, your peace of mind is definitely worth that. Yeah. Just a quick question. And you may say this doesn't happen at all with at least your clients. Um, I don't know. But how common is it that you find in talking with your practitioners, if something, let's say they get a notice that says, hey, you owe $18,000. You know, I know from experience working with clients myself that fear can be very paralyzing. And there is sometimes a tendency with some people to stick their head in the sand and, and try to ignore it. Um, have you found that that's the case? Or do you find that pretty much your, your, your clients, at least, or practitioners in general are pretty forthcoming with things? Because I found that, that sometimes that is not always the case. <laughs> I guess I don't know what I don't know, Um, but I would say by the time someone starts working with us, they're kind of ready to tackle their problems. So they may have a stack at home of unopened IRS notices, Mm -hmm. but then we're going to go in and pull transcripts. And then once they start getting more letters, then we're going to get those. So I think most of the time they're ready to deal with it. That doesn't mean mean they've always been at that point where they've been, Mm -hmm. they've been ready. Now, Julie, you are looking at numbers all day. You're talking about money. You're thinking about money. You're having these conversations about money with people. For mental health providers, though, money is a topic that can make people really uncomfortable. You know, there are endless numbers of mental health practitioners who got messages in grad school from professors, friends, family members saying you'll never make money in the field. Um, Or, you know, there are practitioners who have been shamed for charging a rate. Um, which would be normal for someone who's a doctor or working in any other health field. But for us, there is um, some shaming for charging for your services as though we're not supposed to do that. Sometimes there is shaming by other mental health practitioners because they believe that someone else's rate is too high. And so I'm wondering how this money stuff shows up in the work that you do with mental health practitioners and the money stuff that you see and how that shows up in conversation. Yeah. So I believe from the bottom of my heart, every practice deserves to be profitable. There has to be profit in every single session, month, right? Session, week, month, year, there has to be profit or else this doesn't make sense. Um, So I would say it's, there's definitely no easy fix as far, as far as I know, we work with our clients to recognize like you have to make a profit. You owe it to yourself. You owe it to your team. You owe it to your community because I've seen the practices who are just really struggling, who can't make payroll. If you don't have enough money to make payroll, someone is going to get hurt. You didn't intend that, but someone is going to get hurt. First, it's going to be your employees. Then it's going to be their clients when your employees, you're not able to either keep them or they find other jobs because they are um, they can't deal with the the stress of not knowing where their next paycheck is coming from. So, so a practice owner deserves to have a, a profitable practice and there has to be enough room, not only for the risk, but there has to be enough room for, for their, them to, to build a nice buffer. 
having an emergency fund, like being able to build an emergency fund in the business is good for everyone. It's good for the practice owner. It's good for all of the employees. It's good for the clients. If something happens like last year, COVID, we're having really different discussions with our clients who've got money in the bank versus those who are running literal paycheck to paycheck, where we're waiting for the deposits to come in before we can run payroll because there's not enough money in that account. It does a service to everyone when you can build a practice that's profitable. The other thing is it's way easier to do it when you start that way from the very beginning, right? Start looking at profit from the very beginning, but it's literally never too late. There's always possibility to to turn things around. You might have to make some really difficult decisions, but there always is opportunity to right the ship all the way up until the day where you put the key in the door for the last time. Yeah. Well, and I think it's also really interesting that you say that because I think a lot of times business owners are having to think about compensation. How much do we compensate people for their work? Um, And oftentimes in the mental health field, there are people who are comparing, well, how much can I make at this practice versus another in terms of a percentage or a flat rate? And on some level, I think if you are working at a practice, someone might say, well, I'm going to go wherever I'm going to make the most money. And, you know, if there's an issue with that practice's books not being okay, that's on them. I don't have to worry about that. You know, but what I hear you saying also is that, yes, there are other things to consider, even if you're an employee or an independent contractor working somewhere, if someone is overpaying or they're paying higher than they should, that there are potential consequences for the people who work at that practice as well. Sorry, I was going to say one thing too, just to your point, I was going to actually say that it goes to your credit that goes to also show why what you're doing is so important is there's a legal component, not to scare people, but if you don't pay your employees, uh, there is potential liability. People tend to like to get paid. And if they don't, they tend to also be able to find an attorney who might be able to represent them, depending on the circumstance who all of a sudden may be able to make a claim that you owe them money. And if you can't pay them, that's a big problem. So it goes to, again, goes to the point of why it's what your role is so important. I feel like, because by doing it right the first time, figuring this, how working with you to figure this out, that also resolves that component. You're not having to worry about, you know, for example, not being able to pay someone over time when you're obligated to pay over time, like you are in Maryland. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and the reality is like, if you're having to ask your employees, Hey, can I pay you a couple of days later? You may not, it may not feel like it on the spot, but like, they're going to start looking. That's just like you've lost their confidence just by having to ask that question. Even if later you go, uh, you're able to say, "Oh, never mind, we've we've got it." Like they they're starting to ask questions. Um, But right now, it's such a tight labor market; it's so hard to recruit practice owners. We're getting a lot of questions along the lines of like, "Hey, I have this this applicant. I'm really interested in making them an offer, but they were offered a seventy percent split from somewhere else, or seventy five, whatever it may be. Right? Like I've seen all the way up to eighty. They they've mm-hmm. been offered eighty percent split. Higher. You've Did seen you? higher. Oh, wow! Wow! How, how, I'm shocked. How, okay. I want to know. know. <laughs> hey, how much I higher? Said, how much higher? I know. I want to know. Like oh, why? What? That's wow. crazy. Eighty-five is the highest I've ever seen. Um, I've seen so, seventy-five. That was the highest I've seen. That's right. Mean, all of those are high, right? So yeah. they're asking us, like, can I afford to do this? And what I've responded to practice owners is. If you're not able to make a profit on this person, you should not make the hire. If you're losing money on every session, this doesn't make financial sense. And if someone else is putting themselves in a position where they are not going to make any money, that doesn't mean that you should also. And eventually that person's probably going to become available again because that practice is just not sustainable, right? You can't put yourself in a situation where you as the practice owner are having to work harder 
just to pay the overhead on an employee that isn't making you any money. That doesn't make any sense. So I would, I'd rather not hire someone and, and not grow or refer people out or, or have a wait list than put yourself in a uh, difficult financial situation. It's hard to do. I get it's, it's hard to do, but it doesn't make sense. That goes towards something that I often counsel clients about, which is, you know, and this when we mentioned this earlier, which is again, that, um, you know, often I have this discussion with practice owners where I remind them that, you know, you are running essentially two different functions of a business. You're running the, the mental health practice. But I say, I mean, also what I tell them is you're a CEO. Your job as with CEO of a Fortune 500 company, as much as it is with you, is your job is to protect your company, is to, you know, protect the interests of your company. And if you're when you're a company in a position where it can't make money, um, your job as the CEO is to figure out how to make that happen. Right. You know, or else you shouldn't be in business as a CEO. Yeah. Um, and so that's uh, and tied to your point. I think that's a really important, you know, consideration that if you're going to own a business or a practice, um, you have your job in addition to providing mental health services to people, your job is the business side of that practice. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you have to be compensated for that job too. Right. Uh, you have to be compensated for it 110%. Yeah, it's too much work, right? Uh, it's a lot of work. And so if you're going to go through the work of bringing people on, you want to make sure that it makes sense. And I would almost argue like as you shift uh, into a, a group practice, right, especially if you've got five or more employees, like your responsibility almost becomes more to the team than to the clients. If you mm-hmm. take care of the team, uh, and don't run out of cash, then the team is going to take care of the client. So it's yeah. kind of a, a trickle down effect, but like you, you can't be involved in every single client, but if you're taking mm-hmm. care of the team and offering the right benefits and getting the, the right trainings and creating that culture, then you're able to better, uh, better serve the clients in the community too. Yeah. I yeah. love that. And I'll even tell you, you know, I've worked with practitioners who, I, where they've gotten to the point where the business has grown to the, to so large that you know, they may have to make a decision. And sometimes they want to make this decision. Sometimes they're unhappy about it. But um, the ones who are um, actually make a decision that they are no longer going to see clients. Now, all of a sudden they yeah. say, okay, I'm going to be making sure that other people are working for me who are seeing the clients. And now I'm really running this. This really is a business and I'm the head of a group organization. Um, and there is a kind of a shift that happens, you know, that has to happen to, to, to be profitable. Yeah. Now, one of the things that you have already mentioned, and I've heard you say this on your own podcast, is that it's not about creating a successful practice. It's about creating a profitable practice. So tell us a little bit about that distinction and why that is important. Yeah. So I'm a big fan of Mike Michalowicz and Profit First, right? He has several books, Profit First, Fix the Snacks, Pumpkin Plan. Uh, Profit First is my favorite. We, We implement Profit First with a lot of our clients. I use it in my own business as well. Um, and, and he says something along the lines of like, who cares if you're making a, a million dollars a year, if your profit is zero, right? Because sometimes there's all these vanity metrics of like, oh, I have 22 employees. Oh, I have four locations. I have a million or I have a million dollar practice. And those are, things are all well and good. And they can be really good metrics. But if there's no profit, what does it all matter? I'd much rather have or see a $200,000 a year practice netting $100,000 than a million-dollar practice netting $25,000. Those numbers are not good. Um, and so sometimes, like this goes back to the, the, the Facebook advice, like sometimes someone looks very successful on the outside, like, oh, they have so many locations, like their advice must be good. But the question that is not asked because it's kind of inappropriate is like, okay, great, you have all these things and you have this great advice, but like, are you making a profit in your practice? Because I can tell you, 
it's not always what it seems. Mm-hmm. On that note, let me ask you this. What is one thing that you wish all private practitioners or group practice owners uh, would take away from our conversation today? Uh, okay. Can I, can I do two? Please. I can okay. do three. Know your numbers, know what your costs are in your business. What is your payroll cost? What are your overhead costs? Like know how much it takes to run your business for one month. Uh, and I, I would also say like, it's a good, always a good idea to know that on the personal side, like know how much you need to be taking home on the personal side. That's always, always helpful for anyone. Then I would also say, please use a, a professional tax preparer. If you're a business owner at the very, very least, you need a professional tax preparer. Do not do your own taxes. It is more complicated when you have a business. If you're a W-2 somewhere, knock yourself out with TurboTax. Like I, there will be no judgment, but the number of errors I've seen and like how expensive it is to fix a mistake for, on a self-prepared tax return, it is not worth it. Unless you are a CPA turned therapist, like please don't do it on your own. Like that will always be money well spent. Yes. Now, for people who are really curious now and they want to connect with you, they want to learn more about your work, how can they get in touch with you and where can they find you? Yes. So I have an amazing, amazing team. You can reach us at greenoakaccounting.com. You can find a link for a free consultation to figure out if um, you might be interested in our services, find out about our services. You'll also see links to our blog, our podcast. There's tons and tons of free information uh, available there, but also feel free to uh, schedule some time with our team uh, if you're interested in, in talking about uh, monthly accounting. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been for Informative Infinity. It just fits in with everything that Melissa and I talk about. And so it's an absolute delight to be able to talk to you again and, and kind of get this perspective. That about wraps up for us today. We thank you guys for listening to us and joining us. Um, we hope you've enjoyed this conversation. Please do check out uh, Julie's practice um, and on the web and reach out to her if she can help you. And to join the conversation as always with us, we are always interested in hearing your feedback. If you have questions, comments, critiques, if you have your own anecdotes you'd like to share with us, please do send it to us. You can find us on the web. You can find us on our Facebook page. Um, other than that, we will talk to you soon. We look forward to uh, seeing you on our next episode. Thank you for listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast. Be sure to visit protectingyourpractice.com to connect with us, continue the conversation, and access additional information. As a reminder, the information on this podcast does not constitute legal advice. Listeners should contact their own attorney or paid consultant for all decisions regarding their own practice.